0: Welcome to Exploring Filipino Kitchens, I'm your host, Nastasha Ali. Today we're going into the kitchens of a restaurant where old ingredients collide with new techniques, and a thirst for knowing where all those old ingredients come from govern the way the kitchen and service bring tastes of the Philippines to your plate. Shortly after moving to Toronto, I was at a Chapter's Bookstore downtown when I first saw the spine of a hardcover book called Memories of Philippine Kitchens. It was a book by Amy Bessa and Romy Dorotan. Amy and Romy owned a restaurant called Cendrillon in Manhattan in the early 90s. This was back when Philippine cuisine was unheard of in North America, outside of Filipino homes. That day, I debated whether to get Barefoot Contessa, Nigella Express, or this intriguing Philippine cookbook that I'd never heard of. It was the first time I remembered seeing a beautifully photographed book about Filipino food on a bookshelf with other beautifully published books that I coveted. Of course it drew me in. Beyond the recipes and stories of food traditions that were generations old, what Amy really taught me was to think about food that was always ours, and food that was borrowed and made our own. This perspective, or lens, of thinking about Filipino food has carried and informed my own kind of self-paced study about food from the land that I grew up in. When I decided to write reviews of Philippine cookbooks on my blog, because I couldn't find any online, I wrote about memories of Philippine kitchens. So I contacted Amy through the Purple Yam website, Purple Yam is the restaurant in Brooklyn and Manila, which Amy and Chef Romy now run. And one year later, here I am, finding that I'm about to share a really meaningful and downright delightful conversation with Tita Amy about food from the Philippines. Life can be pretty awesome. So today, we're exploring Philippine flavors, ingredients, and foodways with Amy Bessa. In this interview, Amy and I talk about Philippine flavor profiles, about how what grows around is what's used in cooking, and how those ingredients that grow around are what become the preferred flavors that seem to be embedded in our DNA. We talk about serving Filipino food, about how sosawan, which is a Tagalog word for dipping sauce, is such a definitively Filipino way of customizing a dish to your taste. Amy's stories of life at Purple Yam Malate, the restaurant whose walls were the place that Amy spent her childhood, now a place that literally exudes that homey feel that so many restaurants strive to convey, that story stuck around with me for weeks. When Amy talks about sourcing Philippine ingredients, it's like I feel little shivers of delight working their way up for my belly, And this huge smile spreads across my face whenever I listen to her talk about the importance of working with agriculturists, with farmers, and local cooks directly. The Philippines is like a treasure trove of these types of folks to speak with and work with, and it just excites me to no end. We talk about what Filipino food is, how the show Don't Tell approach fits getting people to understand the value and beauty of our food culture. To get a sense of how land shapes food traditions, we can even start with a map, Amy says, and take a look at how climate and geography dictate the foods that thrive in the Philippines. She talks about looking at a map and observing the contours of the land, noticing where the cliffs begin and the shores start, understanding how food traditions in certain regions or provinces are shaped by those contours of the land. That was fascinating. Amy and the Purple Yam team are gifted storytellers who use a dinner plate as their canvas. They tell stories about Filipino people, of the ones who grow, harvest, and process the ingredients brought into their kitchens, that in turn become these visually captivating works of the Philippines on a plate, a form of edible artistry.
1: It's so easy to win Filipinos over to something like that, because it's an adventure, right?
0: This was how my conversation with Amy began.
1: You know, like when you have friends and when friends talk to you, you need to be, you need to listen, right? You know, when you hear, you need to listen. and right? When you look, you need to see. You know, I always say that. So I file a lot of stuff in the back of my head. Then I remembered a friend who once said that I have a brother who's based in Dumaguete. And then I said, well, I knew that dumaguete is a source for siniguelas, right? Siniguelas is a Spanish plum. So I contacted her. I said, you know, I need siniguelas from that part of the the country. Can you ask your brother to help me? So it was like that,
0: right? And just like that, we come to learn a little bit more about food in the Philippines.
1: And so they found this. Area in the southernmost part of Dumaguete, that island where there there are a lot of trees that are organic. Nobody owns them; they're just growing wild. So you know, people would pick siniguelas right. from them, bring them to market. You know, so for two shipments, I was able to get like ten to twenty kilos of these beautiful siniguelas, and they they. They flew them. Like, they put them on a a Philippine Airlines plane and, and shipped them to Manila. And my guy had to go to the airport. Now, that was a project we worked on because we featured that in the Madrid Fusion presentation last April in Manila.
0: Madrid Fusion is currently one of the Philippines' biggest culinary draws, Over the last three years, chefs such as Juan Roca of El Celer de Can Roca, Elena Arzac of the three Michelin-starred restaurant Arzac, have visited the Philippines specifically to take part in this International Gastronomy Congress. What an exciting time to show off this local fruit.
1: But then... It's a dying fruit, right? Hardly any commercial value because it's like a childhood fruit. Nobody cares about it. They've cut down most of the trees. So we decided to focus in on that, right? And this is my kitchen mindset. If we get something like that, we have to figure out what to do with it.
0: And sometimes that involves factors
1: like... Go to the airport. This is what we do all the time, okay? We have... We, we do whatever it is to get something really good, okay? Uh, You know, like, that, for me, is what I live for, right? To figure out all these logistics and, you know, just... So that people who come to the restaurant, they you know, they don't need to travel all over the country. Look, like, hey, we flew this in from Dumaguete, and this is the taste of the soil of the place of our country, right? And the siniguelas that grows there so different from the Siniguelas in Luzon, right? So, okay, this is what we found out, okay? We, we, we were tasting it. We were... It's so delicious. I mean, it's... it's. I've never eaten Siniguelas like that in my whole life because the Siniguelas of Luzon is very, very astringent, okay? So, Romy and I were there. Romy was there at that time, and we were, like, analyzing it. and And we came to the conclusion that there were two flavors involved in the siniguelas, right? There's the plum part because it's a plum, but then there's a huge part of it that's mango, okay? And, and then this, you know, like when you get things like this in your mind, you know, your brain starts exploding, right? My, my brain was like, oh, my God, no wonder our mangoes are the best. Our soil really is very well suited for fruits that have this mango flavor. Okay, so...
0: On sourcing Philippine ingredients.
1: Everybody asks me about that. How do you find your ingredients? But, you know, uh, I started with a few sources. You know, I get to meet people whose mandate is to create markets for... Small farmers, so you know, like that's been a very nice relationship for me, you know, because when this DOST person said,
0: "That's someone from the Department of Science and
1: Technology," we have all these native cherries, and we have cherries, we have cherries, and then like I would text her, "What what do they call the cherries in Benguet? Is there a name for it?" And then she said, "No, ma'am, we just call them cherries." I was so funny. And then when they came, right, when you cut them, they're really so different. They have a lot of seeds. When you cut them, they're like cutting a calamansi, you know, like all these seeds radiating from the center. As opposed to, you know, when you're used to a cherry here, it's, it's a stone fruit. It's a one huge pit. And we were tasting it like, ugh, oh, this doesn't like taste so good, right? You know, it's so astringent and, you know, very thick skin and you don't know what the pulp is like. These farmers were able to pick 20 kilos of wild blueberries. Along with those cherries. In the forest. And they don't know what to do with them. And so I'll say, okay, I'll just get the 20 kilos. That's the philosophy that I use in my restaurant. It's seasonality. It's based on the producer. You know, I am very respectful of the problems and the needs of the producer. Like last year was a horrible year for us because of the drought. I mean, I had such a hard time uh, getting stuff because they weren't good. But thank God, because of Benguet, because it's still in the mountains, I still was able to get a lot of good stuff. But like from my other sources, it was very difficult.
0: Even in the Philippines, it can be easy to forget that...
1: Nature is not a factory. You know, it's like nature is very challenging, and it's the best source of flavor, the best cook in the world. Now, Fortunately, one of the most popular products we have in Malate is our ice cream. And we also have uh, our Halo Halo bar is also very popular. So whenever we have fruits like that, it's like we just transform them into preserves. Then we just put them in jars or we make them into ice cream.
0: It's an approach to food that's visibly inspired by the likes of Alice Waters in the West.
1: For me, this is one of the things I try to press on to restaurateurs and to chefs that, you know, when you plan a menu for your restaurant and you think of dishes first, for me, that's putting the cart before the horse, right? When I get ingredients, and these have to be really extraordinarily good ingredients, okay? I just don't go to any market and pick things up. So if you eat at our place, I've sourced out and vetted the produce.
0: That underlines Amy's commitment to work
1: with farmers directly. And if I buy from them, I know them personally. And for a lot of them, I've been to their farms. And I know what their methods are. And I know that they're very careful. They're people with integrity. And if that changes, then I no longer will buy from that. Because of that, the ingredients are very, very expensive.
0: But it pays to find these top-quality ingredients, and increasingly, people are willing to pay for them. So why, am I to ask, is it really worth sourcing these ingredients that are grown on small-scale farms?
1: Well, you know, I, I start with myself. I mean, you look at the common denominator, and you go back to what is growing in the environment, you know, like what people really have selected from the environment to use in their food. Because, you know, um, we share a lot of things with a lot of cultures and a lot of countries, especially in Southeast Asia, you know, because the people before us traveled to different islands and different regions and brought stuff with them. But I think it's really the the selection process you know the preferred flavors and that's basically embedded in our DNA even the food that grows today i mean i you know this is a for me a very very profound concept that people must understand like if they look around and look at the type of rice that grows the type of fruits that grow They're here today because our forefathers liked them enough to replant them. just, Just think, you know, like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago, you have all this selection of plants, right, at your beck and call, and you want to farm, you want to grow some rice. Maybe you have a thousand species of rice there. But what do you grow? What do you replant? And a lot of that is, you know, because they preferred, they liked it enough to replant. And that's very, very profound. Because think of all the things and all the plants that are not available now. And it's because no one liked them enough. So how does purple yam play their
0: part in saving these heirloom varieties of fruits and vegetables? I find myself asking can we really encourage farmers who struggle with their own problems of turning a profit from farming in the first place to save those seeds and plant those nearly forgotten breeds of grain and legumes? How can we, as people who might go to restaurants like Purple Yam, do our part to help save these inherited Philippine ingredients from extinction? Is that even possible?
1: You know, I am also on the board of this CSA, you know, Community Supported Agriculture called the Good Food Community. And this is very recent, and this is very good for me because they work with 200 farmers in Tarlac and Benguet and Mountain Province, so three provinces. They also need a way to push the product to market so that these farmers can earn a living. And it's difficult, you know, because, you know, CSA is hard. And I absolutely believe it. Very problematic because your supply is based on what the farmers produce, right? It's not what you want or what you need. It's like you get this every week, whatever they have, and you use it, right? That's
0: so much food for thought. Amy's stories make me think about what it might be like to work at Purple Yam Malate. When I was in college in Manila, our second year of hotel school marked the decision to major in hospitality management, culinary arts, or tourism. If that were me today, the possibilities that exist with truly marrying those three subjects into promoting food tourism in the Philippines with restaurants with a similar mindset is fascinating.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: well, that's why they're there, actually. Um... They are Amy's current chefs at Purple Yam Malata.
1: I mean, that's one of the requirements to work there. It's that you really want to work with Philippine ingredients. If that's not your interest, you don't work there. So they know that my job is to keep finding connections with farmers, new sources. And I guess what I do is I really make sure that the ingredient is good enough for them to work with. And, of course, then they test it out. Then they go, well, you know, we have a problem with this. It doesn't hold up that well, and the flavors aren't that great. You know, like, of course, not all ingredients are equal. You know, just because something is very precious and, you know, indigenous and part of the culture of the indigenous people, not, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will translate well on the, on the table.
0: So I asked Amy if she could give us an example.
1: So I've got this little pastry chef saying, okay, okay you work on, on getting a jam out of this. And, and Romy was there, you know, because Romy had these techniques, right? Because he's been working with the Jocotes here. The is the Mexican Siniguelas, right? That's the one that they sent over from Mexico to the Philippines. We find them in Hispanic, uh, you know, groceries here, frozen and all that. So Romy actually started working with them. And, you know, siniguelas is very difficult to work with, right? Huge pit, right? Very little, very little pulp and then this thick skin, right? So Romy has like three different ways to extract the flavor, right? He has the pulp, he has the skin, and he has the seeds. And the seeds, he boils them further, to extract more flavor so then you don't waste the seeds because you know he gets the flavor out of that. so then you know I've got this pastry chef and she comes back to me and says if you cook this jam for this amount of time you lose the plum then you come up with mango and I said no <laughs> okay I don't want mango because if we want mango we just will use mango right yeah but so then she figured it out, you know, like she was able to figure it out that with using all these three different things, the seed, the pulp and the skin, how to do it so that when she cooks it, she still gets the siniguelas part of it. It's funny that, you know, this is the one aspect of the restaurant that I really didn't think much about is the service now uh you know the service we now we have very professional waiters working for us and they choose to work for with us you know they they make us their priority they're always on call right because we're not open every day we're we only open for reservations but when when we get a reservation they're there whenever i am part of the service, right? Because there are times when I post a dinner or a lunch, they really hear an earful from me, you know, because I get very upset if they do not know the details, you know, because that's what makes the dinner so unique, right? Because, you know, like you serve three different grains of rice, if you don't tell people what they are, they're not going to say, you know, these are grains of rice, right? But you say, oh, okay, this is the the omino or the, the violet, and omino is an heirloom rice, or, and then it's a spirit with adlai, which is Job's tears, which is not really rice but a different type of grain, you know. And this coffee is from Mia Ryan, Bokidnon, a valley in between two volcanoes, you know, things like that. And actually, honestly, like. If you were in the back of the house, like, you know, part of the kitchen, it's really very exciting because, you know, my driver is always going to the bus depot picking up this, picking up that, or we get deliveries from vehicle. And so every time there's this shipment and we open the boxes, it's always like this treasure. What is it that they're sending? You know, because sometimes I get all these offers like, okay, can you take this type? Of, you know, like that that kitchen is like a lab, right? Okay, and you are free to do whatever you want. I'm not gonna stand over here like a cop, okay? I'm just gonna give you some guidelines, and then they come back to me and say, okay, this is it. This is what we found. You know, I said, but just the number one. Is that you need to interact with every single thing that comes before you, and the next time you do something is not always the same, right? When you're cooking the same grain of rice every day, don't expect it to come out the way you did before. So all of them have a relationship with the ingredients that they are working at the time. When they work that way.
0: They are never bored. Given to hundreds, maybe even thousands of species of grains, legumes, vegetables, fruit that grow in the Philippines, how could they?
1: Like, okay, that's the training they have, like a healthy respect for nature, the ingredients, the process, and everything is a thinking process. So when they come out of that, you know, experience, they are actually smarter, and more knowledgeable. So, and he said, when you come out of here, when you leave, you know, if you're a lot smarter than when you came in, then it was all worth it, right?
0: And before I forget, that bit about Sosawan?
1: Yeah, the, the, it's very democratic, you know, uh, because the final chef or the final cook is the diner. And every diner creates a different dish at the end. When he eats it, if you use all that salsawan...
0: As a dipping sauce, that can be anything from soy sauce and calamansi, or liver sauce to banana ketchup, or the dozens of varieties of spiced vinegars available all throughout the Philippines.
1: Then, you know, it's his dish already, because he manipulated the final taste, right, with the salsawan.
0: As if decoding, the Filipino palate isn't enough. for this episode is by David Seste, Squire Tuck, Eric and McGill, and Josh Woodward. My sincerest thanks to Amy Bessa for this interview. If you'd like to hear more, please visit exploringfilipinokitchens.com and share the page on Facebook or leave a comment. Also, would love if you subscribed on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, when we explore more Filipino kitchens, thanks for listening.